Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I am well, Sarah, and yourself? Not too bad. It's a little bit earlier than we normally record. I know. I'm used to these afternoons after I've been well caffeinated and gotten through most of the day. I've got actually got patients to see yet today. I'm usually done with all that before we do this. Oh, it's is this messing up your whole like daily routine? No, I think it'll be a fine. I, I, I just have to adjust. I have to learn to continue to adjust, right? That's one thing the pandemic has taught us that uh, we have to be flexible. It's true. I, I haven't had my second cup of coffee yet, so hopefully I am still as on the ball as I normally am, but we'll see. I'm curious if the cat's going to make an appearance in the morning, because I don't know if the cat's going to know that it's time to show up. Yeah, she's sleeping right now. I have a box on my desk with a pillow in it that is her spot. Oh. That way she doesn't sleep on my keyboard while I'm trying to work. Yeah. So. Well, it was an interesting week here. I mean, you probably, I, I, you live in Iowa and stuff, and you don't know about all this stuff, but we had a change in our football program, and we play Oklahoma tomorrow, so I don't know how this is going to go. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> but, but our guest is from, uh, from Florida, and that's where our coach had been, but at a different school before coming up here, so she might remember a little bit of that, I don't know. I tend to be a little ignorant. I'm in my bubble of you know, <laughs> momming and, you know, squishing a million other academic things in a day. So I'm probably clueless <laughs> about football. <laughs> so I'll let Sarah do the introduction since, uh, uh, since she uh, knows her and, and, and it was great that she was able to join us on the show. Yeah. So today we have Christine McGuire-Wolf, who is with the University of South Florida. And she's got a background in emergency medicine and infection prevention and has some really cool things going on right now. So um, we're really happy to have you here, Christine. Thank you. Thank you. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of background of like kind of where you grew up in your professional life? Sure. Um, so probably um, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I was actually working in child welfare and was a volunteer firefighter and um, sort of predictably burnt out in child welfare and um, very quickly transitioned into a career as a firefighter paramedic. Um, and so I stayed there for 18 years. Um, I went through my doctoral program while I was a firefighter um, and my doctoral uh, dissertation was on um, sharp safety in firefighters. Um, and I was their infection control officer for the good chunk of my time, the last chunk of my time there. So I retired in August of 2020. Um, and I had been adjunct faculty all along at the University of South Florida um, at their College of Public Health. And so when I retired from the fire service, um, I came over as full-time faculty in the College of Public Health there. Um, so I teach primarily um, in infection control programs. We have an undergraduate minor in infection control. Um, so the cornerstone of that program is sort of my baby, the foundations of infection control course. 
Um, and then there's quite a few MPH students um, with a concentration in infection control that I supervise their field placements and things like that. So that's awesome. awesome. Yeah. I wish they had an infection control concentration when I took my master's courses. Um, it's one of the few there. It's not a very yeah. common um, concentration. Um, and we get a lot of uh, the student population is sort of mixed. We get um, quite a few that are already actively working in the field, um, but, you know, entered the field back in its infancy when there wasn't necessarily graduate degree requirements or availability. Um, and so they're actively practicing, but now that they're further along in their career and they're looking at supervisory positions, they need, um, you know, the credentials to, to support that. Um, and then we get, you know, probably the other half is, you know, incoming new students who are completely novice um, and starting out in the profession. That's very cool. That is, that is. It looks like you're still representing firefighters in your shirt. That was a totally, totally by accident, actually. <laughs> I didn't realize we were going to have video. So, you know, I'm working from home today. But yes, it's a firefighter cancer initiative. Um, you know, that's one of the other occupational challenges that really has come to light recently for firefighters is our high rates of cancer related to occupational exposure. Is that just from smoke inhalation or something else that you guys are around? It's, you know, there's a lot of carcinogens. Um, and even, you know, once the fire is all out, a lot of those carcinogens off gas um, and it, you know, it's on your gear, it's in your clothing, um, that sort of thing. So it's been a lot of changes in the industry over the last, I wouldn't even say 10 years, I'd say the last five years in terms of, you know, rinsing at the actual fire scene. So you're not coming back, um, you know, covered in soot. Um, when I was a baby firefighter, if you had a clean helmet, that was like an embarrassment. That meant like you were too scared to go into the fire. Um, and so like if you had a really sooty, dirty helmet covered in carcinogens, <laughs> that meant, you know, you were, you know, whatever, you knew your stuff, you were up in the flames. And now that's like, um, you know, it's better if you have clean stuff because then you're not, you know, exposing yourself to those uh, chemicals and other things. So yeah. that's changed a lot. That makes sense. Um... Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that, I mean, thinking about it, it makes sense that it's a big risk factor, but it wouldn't have been something that I would have popped in my head if I hadn't seen your shirt and talked about it. That's awesome that you guys are um, addressing that. Yeah, we did a lot of crazy things that they absolutely would not allow. <laughs> no. But, you know, 20 years ago it was commonplace, so. I yeah, think well, it's I that way in every profession, isn't it? <laughs> Like I, said, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s riding around in the backseat of a station wagon with no restraints on us. So I, I think we've come a long way in lots of things. So <laughs> what can you say? Um, so you, uh, starting way back, you it sounds like you had an interest in kind of infection prevention kind of stuff from the beginning. Where did that kind of come from? What, what made you gravitate towards that? So that's a little bit of an interesting story in itself. There's no short stories. I'll try to give you the, the synopsis. My paramedic instructor um, in paramedic school um, actually contracted hep C. And he was no longer actively working in the field, but was very convinced that he had contracted hep C, like, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and he felt very strongly it was one particular call that was, you know, particularly bloody. Um, the patient was ejected through the windshield. And, you know, this was pre very common PPE. 
but you know they're trying to extricate this patient with a lot of glass shards and you know obviously a trauma situation so there's a lot of blood um, and he had sliced his hand open um, and he is remains pretty convinced that that's where he contracted um, hep C um, and there were actually two other firefighters on that particular call who had changed agencies. They no longer were employed with the original agency where the call happened, but they also were diagnosed with Hep C later in their careers. Um, so that was a really impactful, um, you know, that was, I don't know, 20 years ago when the treatment options for Hep C were not as effective and had, you know, much more unpleasant side effects. And, you know, he was trying to continue teaching while going through that regimen and, you know, the very difficult, um, treatment side effects for him. Um, and so that was a pretty impactful um, experience. Um, I don't think that was the sole driving factor, but it, it definitely pushed me um, in that direction. So did that experience with your instructor then um, inspire your doctorate dis dissertation on sharps? Um, it did, it was sort of twofold. So. Um, my doctoral program was global communicable diseases, and then, you know, infection control fell under that umbrella. Um, and I was originally a, um, paired with a faculty mentor who did a lot of malaria and parasite research overseas. Um, and I was actually working in the parasite lab when I had a unplanned pregnancy. <laughs> so, um, it's very difficult to take a baby to, you know, Kenya to look at parasites, you know, that sort of thing. And so my research focus and sort of my long-term academic plan changed. Um, and obviously infection control is a very necessary thing domestically. Um, and there was a faculty member who did a lot of sharp safety research. And so it just kind of came together as a good fit. Um, and my doctoral project was actually looking at sharp safety in firefighters. Um, so um, we collected <laughs> we collected their biohazard containers for a period of time and took them to the lab and had this very specific technique of opening them so we wouldn't accidentally stick, you know, I wouldn't accidentally stick myself while I was doing it, but actually went through and sorted them in the biosafety hoods. Um, you know, this many were uncapped, this many had needles added when they didn't need to be, um, that sort of thing to look at um, practice rates of like recapping needles and things like that. What did you find? Um, that there was a lot. <laughs> there was a lot of <laughs> um, I think it was about 30%. The other, wow. you know, in EMS, there's a lot of things that are pre-filled that are not pre-filled in the hospital setting. And there's a particular um, common type of syringe where you can take a cap off and it'll fit into a lure lock on your IV line. Um, but it has a secondary option where you can pull all of that off and it's just a needle. And so a lot of them, even though they had the safety option, were pulling the whole thing off to use, you know, the needle only option. Um, so we took photos of sort of, and there were some other unusual things that we found. And, um, I don't know why I'm saying we, it was me, but <laughs> we took photos and did, um, focus groups about, you know, look, this is what we saw. What is the reasoning? You know, what are some barriers? Why would you use the device in this way? You know, why are you adding needles? Um, and things like that. 
So what was the training when you were, you said a baby firefighter back when you started? <laughs> um, and, and how, I mean, have you been able to take what you've learned and change, uh, change culture, change training at all? So, you know, changing workplace culture, you know, introducing a culture of safety is never a quick thing. Um, and, you know, added to that is we were making progress about here's the safer ways that you do things. And EMS in general nationally has, and it's been particularly bad in Florida, but it's been a national issue, has had medication shortages. So, you know, hospitals, one of them was Epi. Epi is, you know, the baseline for cardiac arrest response. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we couldn't get one in 10,000 epi. So then you had vials of one in 1,000 epi that medics are trying to mix, and you're not allowed to pre-mix it, right? So they're trying to mix it in the back of a truck during a code from one in 1,000 epi to one in 10,000 epi and properly dilute it. And, um, you know, they're doing it with needles. They're pulling it out with a needle they're pulling it in, and trying to get them to do that in a safer way. We sort of lost the forward momentum that we had. Um, Services that, you know, had made commitments like we're only going to buy pre-filled syringes that have safety, you know, that have lure tips um, or lure locks on the tips um, were sort of forced to, that's not available. I mean, you have to have that particular drug on your truck. Um, most places, what medications you have, there's a bare minimum that's set by the state. Um, and if you can't get the safer option because the factory's closed or, you know, there's some other, something else driving the shortage, um, you're sort of forced in back into an unsafe option um, when you had made progress. Um, so one of the things we encountered for the epi scenario, okay, you can't get epi, you can't get epi, and then your supply division finds some place where you can get pre-filled epi syringes in one in 10,000 with the, they're pre-filled, but they don't have the lure lock. They have an old fashioned needle that's embedded in the syringe but you're gonna snatch those up because you have a shortage, right? So if they buy a thousand of those and you know 200 are gone and all of a sudden the ones with the safety tips become available, they're not discarding the 800 unsafe ones. You still have to make it through that lot. And so part of what was happening is they were sort of stockpiling these unsafe options to fill the shortage. <laughs> but then once the safer options were available, they weren't, picking those back up. Um, so some things have changed. Um, there's a little bit more awareness, um, but then challenges that were not previously there sort of reared um, their head. Um, and Epi was not the only one. There were several that seemed to rotate through glucagon, D50. I mean, like really basic, yeah. <laughs> really basic stuff that you couldn't do without. So. Yeah. Have, um, has anybody looked at bloodborne pathogen rates in, in paramedics and seen if they're different than, you know, other, you know, medical fields or, or population in general? I know you gave the story about your, one of your mentors. I was just curious if it's been looked at in a broader sense. So there's some published, there's some published information out there that was showing higher rates. Um, and then there's some showing it's just the same rate as the general population. Um, one of the issues is, you know, for example, my paramedic instructor, it was 20, 30 years later when he was diagnosed, 
So, you know, making that link that far after the fact that, hey, it was an occupational exposure is really difficult. Um, yeah, it's always hard. And I'm, I'm, I don't know how old he is, but he might be in that generation where there was just a lot of hepatitis C for, you know, reasons that oh, you know, we could go through. But, uh, um, you know, there's a reason that we test people of a certain age in between certain age groups, because there is a high incidence of hepatitis C and, and how they got it is, is hard to go back and, and figure out. Well, and there were years and years where nobody in the fire service was just screening employees for hepatitis. And as that has improved, um, I don't think, I think in the beginning, there was sort of a first wave, right? We've never tested, we're going to start doing this. And then people started coming back positive in higher rates than they anticipated. But we've kind of passed that initial implementation where, you know, it's a fairly regular screening process and you're not getting you know, 2% of your staff going back hep C positive. But in those, you know, when they first started screening, there was sort of that ugly transition um, that they weren't necessarily expecting. Do they do any other sorts of bloodborne pathogen screening? So I'm not as familiar nationally as I am with Florida. Um, there are not, if you're a government agency, it's a little bit different for private companies, but if you're a government agency, there's no requirements. Um, so Florida is a non-OSHA state. We don't have a Florida OSHA. And if you're a government agency, my understanding is that you are exempt from federal OSHA because you're government. So again, if you're a private ambulance company, you have different requirements. Um, you know, there are other, um, factors or influences like, um, firefighter unions and NFPA, which is, the National Fire Protection Agency, I think, um, puts out recommendations. The problem is that they're not enforceable. Um, so some of that stuff is really, um, it's helpful to have um, union um, support um, because sometimes they have more influence than you know, a recommendation that you can't enforce. Um, now those NFPA recommendations usually inform the union's position. Um, so the two things go together, but there is a whole, within NFPA, there's a whole health medical standards. Here's what the screening should be happening, things like that. There's not even any um, immunizations that are required. I was going to ask you, what about hepatitis B pre-work screening and immunization? Is that something that I mean, should be routine, right? Right. And now I would say now it would be very unusual for it not to be, but you know, 15, 20 years ago when I came into the field, um, you might get hep B screening, um, but that was it. And when I took over as infection control officer, I guess it was 2007, we had an 18% hepatitis B vaccination rate, um, which is terrible, <laughs> which is horrible. Um, and slowly we were able to, you know, catch up and then implement additional vaccines. Um, one of the issues when I was the infection control officer was that the budget was not increasing for those sorts of things. So we had to look at, hey, here's what they should be getting. They have nothing. Um, we're gonna do one a year because of the budget constraints. And that constraint was very rigid. Like this was not a priority. This wasn't on the radar. You weren't getting more money for it. Um, okay, what, you know, what can give us the biggest benefit in terms of prevention? We're gonna do that one first. And then you know, had a list of priorities. Um, 
So that took, you know, like a 10 year cycle to get everybody, you know, up to a standard. This is what you would have if you were starting out in a healthcare facility. Um, to me, one of the interesting things about that is that if you had looked at it, you know, day one, year one, and said, okay, this is going to take us 10 years to get this list of vaccines out for everybody in the fire service or, you know, in this particular fire department, that would have been daunting, right? You would have been like, this is ridiculous. We're not doing it. But the reality is it took 10 years and everybody was brought up to the standard. Um, where if, you know, you had done that day one, this is ridiculous. We're not doing it. This is, you know, not achievable. You would have still been at, <laughs> nobody had anything. Um, so I think it's a good example about that really long-term thinking, you know, and I think implementing a culture of safety in the workplace has that same, it's so slow and it's so daunting. And, you know, you look at the barrier, like this is never going to happen. Um, but, you know, sort of that chipping away approach, when you look backwards, um, you can see the progress, um, but it's not a quick thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. I'm envisioning, so I'm not obviously not an EMT, I'm not a trauma doc, I don't need to do any of that stuff, but you go out to a scene and it can be quite chaotic. Um, you know, you're trying to get IV access and somebody who obviously needs to get uh, resuscitated and whatnot. How, how do you handle sharks? I mean, do you, is there a shark container that accompanies the crew? Like you said, it's in the truck, but I mean, but you got to get it from, the, you know, from the patient or the, the, you know, the, the site to the box so that you're not having to pick it up later and recap, you know, what, what, how does that go? Is there a set routine for that? It seems to me like that would be on the priority list at the moment probably pushed down because you're trying to save somebody, but yet it's vitally important to keep you guys safe. Well, and honestly, as a medic, that's one of those things that if, if you have a strong partner, you know, you have a strong EMT running with you is the kind of thing that gets taken care of. And if you have not a strong partner, it's one of, you know, one of the first thing that goes, there are very tiny sharps containers, you know, they're probably four inches wide by six inches long, but the actual depth is, you know, probably only, or I guess width is probably only two or three inches um, that fit in the jump bag so that, you know, you have it right there when you're giving it. And, you know, best case scenario, you would be putting your sharp directly into there without recapping it. And then you have, you know, a standard size sharps container on the wall in the ambulance. Um, when we did that look at recapping and, you know, asked firefighters and paramedics, why are you recapping? One of the most frequent, frequently recapped syringes was D50. And, you know, those D50 syringes are huge. And the reason was either A, they wouldn't fit in that little container. Um, and so they recapped it to get it from, you know, the house to the truck to then throw it away in the real sharps container or you know, if you're running a cardiac arrest and you're pushing your first round of drugs or your second round of drugs on the scene, you know, on the floor of the living room, if you're putting that many syringes in that little tiny sharps container, it's full. Like, you, you know, it fills up really quickly because they're so tiny. Um, and so, I mean, that really is a practical logistical issue. Um, you're already walking in the door with like, you know, 50 pounds of equipment, um, you know, so things need to be compact. Um, but it is a legitimate concern. It sounds like it, an area of opportunity for some researchers out there that might be listening 
<laughs> to start developing some safer sharps for paramedics. <laughs> yes. And, you know, unfortunately, it goes back to once it's developed, then you've got to convince agencies that, hey, this additional cost offsets what you're going to pay when somebody gets stuck and they're doing a round of PEP and, you know, the medical follow up and, you know, God forbid they actually zero convert. Um, you know, even though it's more expense on the front end, um, that it, it will in the long run send the, save the agency just funding for one bad stick. Um, that's hard to prove in the future, you know, hey, you're yeah. going to save this money. Agreed, agreed. Um, another question, and if we can go on from, from uh, needle sticks a little bit, I know that's kind of your, your area there, but uh, just infection control in general, you know, we've had uh, the COVID pandemic, and now we have monkeypox. Before that, we had, you know, patients with Ebola. Um, you know, so, you know, EMTs are obviously frontline. They're going in to who knows what. Um, what kind of universal precautions do you get based on what the call is? You know, if, if it's somebody that's have maybe having respiratory difficulties, is that looked at differently than you know, a trauma and, and what preparation do you give people so that they know when they're going into something that they can protect themselves? So it has improved a little bit, um, you know, during or post COVID um, where they were asking more in-depth screening questions, um, you know, to kind of give the crews a heads up, hey, this is a respiratory patient. You wanna, um, you know, now, you know, mid pandemic, they were pretty much masking for everything. Um, but early pandemic, that was not the case. They were trying to screen out patients. The difficult, there's a twofold difficulty. Um, nationally, there is a 911 dispatcher, what they call call taker or public service access point, a public safety access point. There's a shortage of the people answering those 911 calls. So if you've got a staffing shortage in the dispatch center and you're adding you know, four or five questions that you want them to go through. And while they're trying to ask these questions, nine, you know, the 911's blowing up and there's nobody else to take those calls. And that shortage is going to get worse. It's projected that it's gonna get significantly worse in the next few years. Um, so yes, screening questions were added. There was an attempt to kind of like raise a risk flag of, hey, you need to be better protected. It wasn't very effective, at least in what I saw, either because they never got to the questions or for a little while in the beginning of the pandemic, there was a perception from the public standpoint that if they honestly, you know, hey, my husband was diagnosed with COVID two days ago and I have symptoms and I'm calling the ambulance, there was a perception that if they were honest about that on the 911 call, that a unit would not come out and get them. And so they were intentionally answering their questions wrong to get the unit there. And then, you know, once they get there, they'd be in the living room. Oh yeah, you know, Bob sitting next to me was diagnosed two days ago. <laughs> um, so I don't think that's as, you know, now that things, cases are more widespread, I don't think that's the case as much, but um, I, I personally don't know that how, I don't have a lot of confidence in how effective the attempts to screen were. Um, I think sort of uh, suspect everybody until you rule something out is probably a more prudent approach. Um, but, you know, if you're in the middle of PPE shortages, um, you know, you've got to balance out the what do you actually have access to? 
Right. And you're obviously going in carrying 50 pounds, as you said, and doing that in an N95 isn't the easiest thing in the world to do, is it? Well, no. And then you add to it, you know, the little yellow gowns that, you know, tear if you sneeze um, and put that on a 250 pound guy carrying 50 pounds of equipment. You know, at some point they just stopped trying to put the gowns on. It was, if anything, it was just a nuisance that was delaying care. They weren't holding up, they were ripping. And then, you know, you're not accomplishing anything anyway. Um, yeah, the PPE shortage was awful, wasn't it? I, I had a, a firefighter from the center of the state out by Disney who shared that what they couldn't get gowns for PPE. So what they were using is Disney had donated a bunch of rain ponchos. And so their gowns in the back of the trucks were actually Disney rain ponchos for what they were using. Um, they mentioned it to me like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. But I honestly think that was probably better than the ones that rip so easily. Um, you know, you were at least getting some plastic vinyl, you know, protection. So. I can just see a big guy running into a house wearing a poncho with Mickey Mouse Mickey on Mouse. it. <laughs> yeah, so I was going to say, Central Florida, right? It has to be Mickey Mouse. <laughs> at least they were using them, though. That's <laughs> That's I mean, good. you know, I guess sometimes you have to get creative and that's, you know, where we were. Um, I think, and this is sort of my current research push, um, is that even though there was a lot of pandemic plans on the books, um, they weren't necessarily things that had been implemented. So, you know, the pandemic plan might say, we're going to take steps to increase our PPE supply. But in terms of logistically, hey, we have an excess of PPE in this spot that we have easy access to um, was not the case. Um, and I think hospitals were probably a little better positioned for that. I mean, they were obviously significantly impacted by the shortages. But in a lot of instances, EMS responses to outbreaks were not at the top of everybody's mind, right? So we had written plans, you have to have written plans, counties had, you know, this is what we're going to do. But in terms of logistically, all right, you know, we know there's an outbreak going on this minute, where can I get N95 masks, and you have enough to get through one day. Um, and you don't have any MOUs or contracts with existing suppliers for excess. Um, so Obviously, I was in the thick of it, so my assessment is a little bit biased, but I think that EMS and fire service agencies were not as well positioned as healthcare facilities um, for an extended response. And by extended, I mean like more than two days. <laughs> How have um, uh, the COVID vaccines been received in EMS community where you are? So, um, <laughs> It's been split. Um, we actually have a um, survey that we pushed out to firefighters in the state of Florida. Um, and the survey was more about household risk. You know, um, in the early stage of the pandemic when COVID was only in nursing homes, what were you taking home to your families? And you know, did, was your 96 year old grandma living at home compared to you live by yourself? Um, what kind of risk 
were present in your household. Um, a very, very small piece of that asked whether their family's risk impacted their willingness to get the COVID vaccine. Um, but at the very end of, I mean, this is like a five minute survey. At the very end, there was a write in portion about, you know, what else would you like to know about, like us to know about your family's risk factors um, during COVID. It was specifically asking about family risk factors. Um, the write in responses about the vaccine are concerningly negative. Um, things like COVID is communism in real life. Um, there never was a virus. This is all a hoax. Um, pretty predominantly in the comments. Um, and we weren't asking about the vaccine. Like that wasn't even what the comment box was trying to address. Um, but it's split. Um, what concerns me ethically is that what a lot of departments did was um, if you were exposed to COVID or you had COVID, you had to take leave and that came out of your sick leave or your vacation leave pool. Even if you were exposed on the job and knew you were exposed on the job, that was pretty commonplace. What many agencies did was if you were vaccinated and then, you know, got a, you know, were infected or, or had symptoms outside of your vaccination coverage, they would pay your leave time. So counties offering the vaccine, if you consent and you're vaccinated, you're no longer eating your leave time, your agency was covering it. If you had declined the vaccination, you were then required to be off for a certain number of days, but those off days would come out of your leave pool, your personal leave pool. And so even though, you know, obviously I would promote the vaccine to as many individuals as I could, it was concerning to me that it seemed like there was a coercive nature to that approach, right? I personally think, you know, somebody who, who thinks the vaccine is a hoax and they think there's a true health risk and they don't want to get it. Now there's a financial penalty in that you're, you know, if you've used your sick time and now you're taking leave without pay, there's a financial penalty if you choose not to be vaccinated. And I just ethically have a concern with that approach. Yeah, it's one more person vaccinated, but it's not helping the underlying problem. Like, they're still well, going to tell other people that it's a hoax or whatever. They're not getting the education that they need to understand why it's helpful. And now yeah. they're angry because you made right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, and I think yeah, um, I understand why they did the approach. I just. I just feel like it's coercion. Well, I feel like that's on the tails of the, you know, the states that were giving away the lottery thing for people that got vaccinated. That. You got oh a my gosh, what state ticket? was it? It was like Ohio, maybe. I can't remember. But early on when the vaccines first came out, they would say, go in and get your vaccine and you get a ticket. And then one person wins like $10,000 or whatever. Wow. Just to Did get people to go get the vaccine. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess if you donate blood, you get a free t-shirt. I mean, I, yeah. I just, I feel like that's different. Uh, yeah. 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 I agree. I agree. Um, well, I, um, I need to hear the story about how you two met. It sounds like it's a <laughs> 
Sarah, do you want to start with the story? Sure. So um, we met at the APIC conference this year, um, not actually in the conference. So the, the very last day of the conference, um, I was going to grab my luggage from the luggage check and I was going to get an Uber to go to the airport. And there was this lovely state lady standing right next to me. <laughs> and she's like, I already have an Uber here. Do you just want to ride with me? <laughs> so and we really jumped in the car. I get creeped out riding in an Uber by myself. So that was my motivation. I was like, oh, she's going to the airport. I can kidnap her. <laughs> <laughs> and to figure out which is worse, riding with Sarah or just riding with you in an Uber driver. <laughs> well, and the driver did not say a single word the whole time. So it was actually, I was really glad that I had roped her in and that we could have a conversation in the back seat of the Uber. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, then during that conversation, I learned all about your background and a really cool project that you have going on right now. I do. I'm so excited. Um, so, you know, 15 years ago when I started graduate school and I was a firefighter working on the street, you know, getting my degree um, and sort of focusing on infection control stuff, this was the end game, like this was the plan. So um, it's really cool that sort of suddenly it, it came together. So um, we were awarded um, a cooperative agreement from the CDC, um, a pretty hefty cooperative agreement to establish the infection control for emergency responders uh, resource center, um, what we have affectionately named ICER, um, to look at infection control issues in the field and um, get some actual guidelines and recommendation and educational resources. Um, a lot of that has been piecemeal um, through the fire service and EMS and so to work on some concrete you know, here's one place you can go to for educational materials, for access to recommendations. Um, it's gotten better in like the last three or four years, but usually EMS practices for infection control are based off of things that were developed in hospitals or traditional healthcare settings. And that doesn't always translate well, like, you know, what Richard was talking about with the Sharps containers on scene. Um, and so there really is a need for things that are not adapted, but are actually developed for um, emergency responders um, that, you know, match our practice setting, match our challenges, um, things like that. So um, we're looking at, um, it's available for five years. So we're looking at sort of a longer term um, project, um, but it's really exciting and sort of like um, Sarah and I's networking story, it's a little bit I kind of like when things overlap in a weird way like that. Um, I actually went to a, it was sort of like a hot wash. They called like a listening session at um, the National Fire Academy um, about challenges in the fire service and EMS for COVID response. And I was out there as a participant. I was there as sort of like a ghost observer. Um, but while I was sitting in these two days, essentially focus groups, um, one of the things that they kept talking about was the lack of education or, you know, you watch or you participate in an online training about N95 masks, but you never actually have a training where you're taught how to put them on properly. So that was part of the discussions. And at lunch, I got on grants.com or grants.gov and Googled like what was out there and found this just by happenstance, this funding opportunity that was open. Um, and so sitting in that hot wash as a silent observer um, is what spurred the application for 
this center. Um, and it took, it was about nine month delay between that session and then when we found out that we were awarded. Um, that was just kind of a cool story about like sitting in a real life, here's the feedback and then here's the next steps. Um, I know I go to a ton of meetings where a lot of feedback is solicited and then nothing is done with it. Um, and it's just, you know, it was a waste of your time. Um, so I'm really excited that it's based on a real life gap um, and that we were able to turn that into this great opportunity. So. And I know you can't say how much <laughs> the grant is, but it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we did like a press release when we got the award and they have to be cleared by the CDC and um, they had made us redact the amount. And the reasoning is that it's a cooperative agreement. So every year you go back for a renewal um, and you know if you're not sufficiently performing, they pull it. Um, obviously we're not anticipating that, but um, that's why they won't let us say the amount. But it is a lot and we're envisioning spectacular things to come. So, and it is um, informed by the existing um, CDC first line uh, training that's available for healthcare workers. So um, it's taking it and adapting it to emergency. Oh, you're, so this is a part of project first line? Yes. Yeah, Sarah knows a little bit about that. I'm the project first line lead for our team. Oh, very cool. Are you doing a <laughs> dental spin on it? I am, yes. Oh, really? Yes, I'm right. I'm in the middle. Um, we finally got approval on some dental content and I'm working on the first presentation right now. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. See another, another one of those weird overlaps. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, took, it took some convincing but yeah. we finally got approved. Yeah. That's really cool. Cause I think it is a, it is definitely a need. Yes, definitely. yes. Um, unrelated to infection control. I actually saw it this morning, um, but it fits into your dental piece. There was a study about if you had a patient who was in the middle of a dental procedure. So had, you know, all the stuff in their mouth still and coded what was, and so could not be removed from the chair to do CPR, what would be the best way yeah. So, so yeah. Dr. Hanshevi. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so I also teach CPR to dental practices, and I just always tell everyone pull them out of the chair onto the floor. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't think there. I can't imagine any situation where you wouldn't be able to take whatever you're doing in their mouth out of their mouth and put them on the floor. But, yeah. I think worst case scenario, you pull the tooth and get out on a way to save in their life. <laughs> I mean, even if you're doing a root canal and they have a rubber dam on, all you can just pull all that stuff out. I mean. I don't know if it was one of those, like one of these things where you're sitting around brainstorming and have just a wacky theoretical question. <laughs> like, you know, something kind of sounds like it. Like yeah. I read the, I read the story that went along with the, the social media post that I got sent and it was like, um, three providers did so many compressions of like on the chair and with a stool under their torso and with the stool under their shoulders to see which one was the best. I was like, why? But why? <laughs> <laughs> I, <don't... laughs> I did have a brief like, hey, that would be the perfect situation to intubate them while they were still in the chair because they'd be like right there and you wouldn't have to lay down on the floor and you know fold yourself up while they were laying on the floor to 
to tube them. Um, yeah. But. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do chest compressions in a dental chair. That would be yeah. awful. They move too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably why the stool idea came up. But um, as my son is planning his middle school science fair project, you know, sometimes those wacky, those wacky questions, you know, we were having to talk on the way to school what his science fair project was going to be on. And then that article popped up and I was like, I wonder if this was just, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> somebody just wanted to know. We're bored. Let's see if we can do compressions <laughs> in the dental chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to try to get Dr. Hantevi on the show. We Let's actually, this is trying to do that several years ago, but we had some state grant funding to do. Um, he does a lot of pediatric training and um, developed a program for pediatric codes and, you know, more serious calls. Um, and so he actually came in person to our fire service, to our training facility. So he is um, very receptive and um, very approachable. Um, had a lot of really cool things going on. That's super cool. Did I, is he the one that developed the app for like dosing down medications for kids? Yes. And I'm having a total blank on what they called their app. Um, but we implemented it and it really does make a significant difference. Um, a significant difference. That's awesome. Instead of trying to do math in your head on how to dose it down. Well, yeah. In the middle <laughs> of the living room, all the moms screaming and right. you know, it's turning blue and, you know, tend to get the decimal points wrong when you're in public chaos. Public math's hard when you're in an ideal situation, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, this isn't 100% true, but a lot of people who go into the fire service and EMS do it because they're not good desk workers or office workers. And so math is not necessarily a strong point. And then you add all those other challenges. And um, so his idea about having the app was just, um, it really does make a huge difference. I wonder if there's been any research done on like the decrease in adverse events by having the app. I know in the early years, and I think he's doing it as like an ongoing monitoring where they were looking at um, retroactively looking at appropriate doses versus inappropriate doses, um, whether they were accurate or not. And there was a pretty significant difference. Um, well, that's good. There's some argument. I don't think this is necessarily data supported, but it inherently makes sense that they are more likely to give those drugs in the house or, you know, on scene before they load the kid. Um, because you're not trying to do math with everybody watching you, um, that there's a greater comfort level. Um, and they have correlated staying on scene and doing the first two rounds of ACLS drugs before you try to transport um, as impacting survival rates. So um, it's kind of indirect, but you know, if you have the tools to make you more comfortable on scene, then you're more likely to stay there and look the codes a little bit before you transport. That makes sense. Well, we are coming up to the top of the hour. Do you have any questions for us? Um, I don't think so. Although now that I know you're roped into the project first line um, <laughs> piece, I may end up having to capture you for some future brainstorming. Um, sure. We are in the really early <laughs> stages where um, 
we're doing a lot of background stuff. I mean, really early, like three weeks in. Um, but um, I think there's probably some great opportunity to kind of pick your brain. Uh, yeah, some- I've been in it for just over two years now. Oh, wow. So, yeah. You can be my new expert for, <laughs> for that. <laughs> I'm happy to. And Richard, I didn't really get any of your background before we came into this, so. No, that's fine. Yeah, I'm um, an infectious disease physician um, at UNMC. I've been uh, I've been in this role for almost four years. Prior to that, I was in private practice, mostly in the Omaha area for about 15 years before that. Um, I uh, um, had uh, done my med school here, and then I'd done my training in St. Louis at WashU, and then uh, came back here to work for this, and so closed my private practice and came over here, and I've been doing um, various things here, but one of the things that I do do is I'm a medical director for employee health here at Nebraska Medicine, and so all of your stuff about sharps and bloodborne pathogens and uh, the, you know, highly involved in the uh, COVID response and COVID testing and return to works and, and for, uh, PPE stuff for, for all of our colleagues and, and the community at large. I'm also one of the medical directors for ICAP, which is our infection control assessment program that uh, Sarah's part of and uh, I'm medical director for our acute care side. So the, we help many of the hospitals throughout the state with infection control questions or, or things that they might have and, and whatnot. But I've also helped with long-term care. Um, I've, you know, I've been on Project First Line with Sarah before, so <laughs> kind of just a little bit of everything. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about me real quickly. Well, I have to plant the seed only because again, my personal experience is that they often don't exist. Um, but what your protocols are, not so much for COVID at this point, but you know, you have a patient come in um, with measles and what protocols do you have in place to track down who transported that patient to just convey the information, right? That crew might not be back to your facility before they go off shift. Um, and sometimes there's written policies that just don't get followed, but often that's such a tangential issue that, um, it's not even considered. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, we're really good at looking at what happens when they're in our facility, but what happens before they get to our facility maybe is not quite as uh, easy. I mean, we're lucky. We have a very close relationship with public health. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, working back and forth with them. And I think that's just been strengthened through uh, the pandemic and with ICAP and everything else. So we would work closely with them to identify the crew and the people and get them. You know, the good news with something like measles is they're not going to be immediately contagious. So um, at least we have, you know, a little bit of time. But yeah, I, I that we had Ebola patients here and there was a whole protocol that EMS training went through and everything else with, with the Davis Global Center here. So we're in a little bit different situation uh, at UNMC than I think many other hospitals would be at because of the resources that we have and the expertise that we have in dealing with um, high consequence pathogens, et cetera. That makes sense where it's already on the, in the spotlight where in a lot of other instances it might not be. Yeah. And ICAP hasn't branched out into pre-hospital medicine. That might be, that's an idea for Dr. Ostroff. There you go. There you go. 
It sounds Those like be... you need a subject matter expert consultant. Just saying. <laughs> Yeah, That'll be another in, thing that I have any to Any interest care of. in moving to winter? <laughs> you want to see you want you want to see snow, right? I grew up in the snow. Once was enough. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Michigan and Chicago, so you yeah. Know so that. you saw a lot of snow and wind. No thanks. <laughs> Maybe I need to take a page from your book and move somewhere warmer. There's, you know, it's pros and cons it's miserable in the summer but um you know you gotta decide what you can tell well it's miserable in the summer here too <laughs> like we get the extreme of both so well, the problem is summer there is like six months long here it's like two to three months long <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that and you know you're in ac with your electric like exponentially growing for six months you know that's, yeah. that's an issue here yeah yeah <laughs> Well, thank you for joining us. It was great to have you on. Very interesting talk. Yeah, I appreciate it. And again, I, I appreciate Sarah for hunting me down and, you know, actually making me answer the emails to schedule it. So it was really good to see you again. You'll have to tell us. We'll have to have you back on when you get your um, project up and going and, and give us an update on how where things are at, how it's going, and what, what you're learning and those kinds of things. It'd be great to hear you talk about yeah, that. Yeah, well, I, hopefully we'll have some intense, you know, really productive couple of months, and I'll have lots to share with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am happy to share whatever you have going on to our social media because it's awesome so just let me know oh, cool. and yeah is your dental stuff going to be accessible through the actual project first line site or are you disseminating it through your university like what's the access point so i am hopeful that it will be distributed nationwide through project first line okay i don't know that yet though um, we're still really early in the development phase of it. So um, we got kind of a list of preliminary topics approved and now I'm building out the presentations themselves. So once I get that done, um, we'll see what happens. I don't know if it'll be like a pre-recorded thing or um, like right now they have the presentation and a facilitator toolkit that is very scripted. So anybody could potentially teach the courses. Okay. Um, so yeah. I don't know exactly where it's going to go yet, but I'm glad we're able to get some dental content because it's really, it's so much different than every other healthcare setting. Well, it's the same, you know, it's not a traditional healthcare setting and it gets, you know, pushed mm -hmm. to the side. So yeah, um, at least it's progress. It is progress. Yes. Yes. Slow, slow progress, but <laughs> we're getting there. So, well, thank you so much for roping me in today. I really do appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for joining us. Have a good day. You too. You too. And for Take all of care. our listeners out there, make sure to follow us on Twitter at dirty underscore drinks and join us for the next episode. Bye everyone. Go big red. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends and don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.